Blog Talk Radio. This is Creativity in Play. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. Our guest today on Creativity in Play is Robert Sternberg, Provost and Professor of Psychology at Oklahoma State University. He's also served as Dean of the School of Arts and Sciences at Tufts University, Professor of Psychology, Education, and Management at Yale University, and President of the American Psychological Association. His research focuses on human intelligence, creativity, wisdom, styles of thinking, and leadership, as well as love and hate. And he is the co-editor of the recent book, The Cambridge Handbook of Creativity. Bob will lead a conversation, From Imagination to Innovation, at the Creativity World Forum in Oklahoma City on November 17th. Bob Sternberg, welcome to Creativity in Play. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Glad to have you. Well, we were looking through with the many, many things you've done, some of which we've just mentioned and many of which we haven't mentioned, including the fact that you've authored more than 1,200 journal articles, books, and chapters, and you're a researcher and a teacher, a writer, an administrator. And it, it, it got us thinking about some connections back to our last interview with Dan Pink in his latest book called Drive, which is about the connection between motivation and creativity, and wondering in all of that diverse activity that you do that seems like you can't possibly have time to sleep, what drives you in your creativity? Oh, well, I think that a lot of it is that when I was young, in the 1950s, they used to give IQ tests, and I did pretty poorly on them. I did so poorly that when I was in sixth grade, I was sent back to a fifth-grade classroom to take the fifth-grade test because they thought the sixth-grade test would be too hard for me. And so I think I'm probably overcompensating, uh, trying to figure out why I did so poorly on those tests. So as you're working now in an administrative role, but I assume you're still carrying on a lot of connections with the creativity research that you've been a part of for so long, what are the things that are most interesting and meaningful to you in that that activity today? Well, I would say the thing that probably, there are two things that interest me most. One is about assessment. Uh, We know that for our society to move forward, Uh, we really have to help kids be creative and become creative adults. And we don't do that. Uh, There are two things wrong. One is in our assessments, tests like uh, statewide mastery tests or ACTs or SATs measure your knowledge and your analytical or critical thinking ability, but they don't measure your creative thinking ability. Uh, I just wrote a book, it was published by Harvard University Press, called College Admissions in the 21st Century. And I describe research we did when I was at Tufts University, where we found that by including questions that measure creative thinking on the application, you could improve prediction of academic performance, but also extracurricular activities and leadership performance. And at the same time, you could reduce ethnic group differences practically to zero. So one thing I'm very interested in is how can we assess creativity in a way that we're selecting kids not just for whether they're good memorizers and critical thinking, but are they going to be the leaders of tomorrow, the people who have a vision for where this country should be going. 
And the second thing is uh, integrating these ideas into teaching. Uh, very often the way we teach reflects the way we were taught. And I know when I was taking introductory psychology as a freshman, I was very eager to become a psychologist because I'd done poorly on IQ tests and was still trying to figure out why. And I got a C in introductory psychology, uh, which was kind of a bummer for someone who wants to be a psychologist. And my professor <laughs> said to me uh, when I got a 3 out of 10 on my first test, you know, there's a famous Sternberg in psychology, and it's obvious there won't be another one. So that was very discouraging, and I uh, decided instead to major in math. And suffice it to say that after taking a, trying to take a course on real analysis, I decided to go back to psychology because the C looked good. And then 35 years later, uh, I was president of the American Psychological Association, which is the largest association of psychologists in the world. And I commented to the guy who was president the year uh, – I was at Yale at that time, and the president the year before was Phil Zimbardo from Stanford. And I commented, Phil, it's kind of ironic that the president of APA got a C in introductory psychology. And his response was, well, I got a C, too. And so I think the second problem is the way we teach, that you know, if you look at introductory courses, not just in psychology, but in lots of fields, uh, we put a lot of emphasis on memorization and whether kids have you know, this sort of factual knowledge base, much of which will become irrelevant and even wrong uh, within a small number of years. So we need to put much more emphasis in our teaching and developing a creative style of thinking and a creative attitude toward a lot. Life, because that's what people are going to need uh, in order to adjust to this very rapidly changing world. So, Bob, um, I want to say wow to your background. Just amazing amount of uh, creations that you've um, taken action on and put out there into the world. But uh, as a person who's done amazing amounts of school myself and gotten a number of degrees and had my fees in different classes, including psychology. Um, I wonder um, how you, what's your take on cultivating creativity in our culture today, which is about largely, or in, in large part really, about conformity and should, shouldings, what we should do. I wonder what your take is on how to create in that environment. Well, ironically, uh one of my former graduate students who's now a professor, Todd Lubart, and I wrote a book that was entitled uh, Defying the Crowd, Cultivating Creativity in a Culture of Conformity. So we were thinking very much along the lines you are. Uh, creativity is, as I mentioned before, it's not so much an ability as it is an attitude toward life. So the major obstacle to being creative isn't that people can't do it. It's that ultimately they don't decide for creativity. And I think that this creative attitude can be encouraged in kids and it can be encouraged in adults, but often it doesn't happen. And you might think, well, if creativity is just an attitude toward life, if it's basically, metaphorically, buying low and selling high in the world of ideas, you know, coming up with ideas that at the time seemed kind of losers and then per persuading other people of the, their value and then moving on to the next idea. If that's the case, well, everyone knows you should buy low and sell high. Why aren't people creative? And 
what I've found is that there are two main reasons uh, they're not creative, but they're very powerful reasons. I'll give you an example of what I mean. When I was a early adolescent, you know, maybe 13, if you wanted to get a girl interested in you, then what you did is you wore very tight pants. Because at least at that time, uh, you know, the attractive thing was to wear really tight pants. The more they hugged your legs and your hips, the better. And I just never liked tight pants. I think I'm claustrophobic, and I found that very difficult to deal with. So I wore loose pants, and the result was that, you know, other kids would look at me and say, well, Sternberg, he's a real dork, uh, or some might say as a dweeb. But after a while, when, you know, they called me a dork, I thought, well, maybe they're right. Maybe I am a dork. And that shows why it's hard to be creative. There are two forces. One is external pressure. Uh, people pressure you to conform. And what then happens is that there's internal pressure. You start putting pressure on yourself to conform. So I think that the main thing we need to do uh, in developing teachers and also parents is to point out that if you want to if you want to develop a kid who's going to be able to deal with a very quickly changing world, uh, you know it's changing quickly politically, economically, socially, uh, in terms of the way we learn and do things, then it's to your advantage to encourage them to question the way we usually do things, to defy the crowd, because those are, those are the kinds of attitudes and skills they're going to need in order to have a successful life. Uh-huh. And then, so I also have noted that you've done some study uh, between creativity and development and play. So I wonder how, what you'd have to say about the connection between creativity and play. Yeah, and with in connection to what you just said and defying the crowd and sure performance. Yeah. Well, you know, we just moved from Boston to Oklahoma of all places, and one of the things that's really great here is we bought a house on 30 acres, and I thought, wow, you know, this is just the right kind of place for kids to grow up. A play is so important, and. You know, like kids, that is the main way I think the kids develop creativity because it it encourages them to think about might have beens and fictional worlds and how things could be. And I think that we're making a big mistake in our society, uh, sort of almost forcing kids to do very academic kinds of work, very analytical work, even when they're younger, and they should be instead learning to play and developing their creative thinking. Uh, so I think play is a really integral part of that, and to the extent that parents think it's a waste of time, they're developing a mindset in kids that's not going to be conducive to their becoming the leaders of tomorrow. Thank you. Bob, you mentioned some of your work um, as president of the American Psychological Association, and I think um, the connection that a lot of people that are interested in creativity perhaps don't realize sort of the whole field of creativity going back to one of your predecessors in 1950, J.P. Guilford, whose then presidential address called creativity sort of launched this whole field of study and, and interest in creativity, particularly in education and psychology. And I think sometimes today, you know, there's sort of this idea almost like this is a, a totally new concept that we should get excited about. I'm wondering if you could sort of link the fact that this this isn't a brand new topic and that there is a great deal of history that, that we're building on today and and what the importance of that is. 
Yeah, the the good news, as you say, is that it has a history, and as you uh, correctly point out, uh, J.P. Guilford actually gave a presidential address to the American Psychological Association. Uh, it was around 1950. It was quite a long time ago, uh, urging psychologists to pay more attention to creativity. Uh, I think that that's the good news. Uh, I think the not-so-good news is that for a variety of reasons, not that many people listen to them. If you look at the kinds of assessments we're doing today as a result of the No Child Left Pined Act, uh, the statewide mastery test, or if you look at the types of standardized tests we're doing in college admissions, you'd be hard-pressed to find creativity being measured. Uh, when we devised error, uh, when I was at Yale, we devised an assessment called the Rainbow Project where we tested about a 1,000 high school and college students from around the United States on, on creativity measures, essentially. And what we found is that using these creativity measures doubled prediction of freshman year grades in college and substantially increased, I'm sorry, decreased ethnic group differences. In other words, different ethnic groups were much more similar if you looked at creativity than they are if you look at standard kinds of analytical measures. Uh, that, that study was funded by the college board, but they didn't choose to pursue it. And what has been disappointing to me is that, you know, the kinds of tests we use today well, they're really no different from what we're using 100 years ago. If you look at the tests of Binet in 1905, they're very similar to the kinds of questions we're using today. And now ask yourself, suppose that medical technology was still stuck in 1905 or telecommunications, where would we be? So whereas other fields have moved forward, uh, Guilford had the right idea, but people just didn't follow up with it, and those who are interested in creativity are still struggling. I'm really glad uh, that we're holding in Oklahoma City the uh, Creativity World Conference uh, in you know this this coming week. Really, it's going to be at the very beginning of next week, because I think that's an opportunity, at least for the state of Oklahoma, uh, to host a conference that really people will be coming from all over the world uh, to see the importance of creativity for their lives. And and Bob, what are some other ideas that you have about? Uh, ways to move this stagnation along and, and create some different kind of assessments and um, enhancing creativity in people's lives. Yeah, well, one of the reasons I came to Oklahoma State as provost is because there's so much interest in this campus in creativity. I was originally, uh, I originally came here to speak about that topic. You know, I think that the main thing is to work with teachers and parents on things they concretely can do uh, to develop kids' creativity. And they're not hard things to do. I'll just give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. So one is encouraging kids to take sensible risks. 
you know, a lot of the time kids are afraid to take risks, and they learn through our school system that that's kind of a dangerous thing to do because it might lower your grade. And yet if you look at people who make a positive, meaningful difference to the world, there are always people who are willing to take a sensible risk. So I think one thing is encouraging sensible, not crazy, but sensible risk-taking. Uh, a second example is helping kids realize that if you're creative, the question is not whether you'll encounter obstacles, because you will. Uh, creative people are crowd defiers, so they will always encounter obstacles. It's that what makes a person creative is that they're willing to surmount those obstacles. So if you have a creative idea and you get a negative reaction, it's realizing that, you know, geez, that's that's what I expect. I have to try even harder. When I was in my first year as an assistant professor, you know, I was invited to give a colloquium at a large testing company. Uh, and so I went to give the colloquium. I said, well, this is great. You know, I'm only 25, and uh, they're already interested in my uh, work, and uh, maybe they're going to change their test. And I, I got up there, and I gave the talk, and, you know, I was so discouraged when I saw that their reaction to the talk was really negative. And first I thought, well, geez, you know, first I came here and thought, you know, if, I'm, <laughs> if they're going to change the test when I'm 25, I wonder what I'm going to be doing when I'm 26. And then I was thinking maybe I won't have a job when I go back to New Haven. And what I learned is that if, if you defy the crowd, if you have creative ideas, it, it's going to be discouraging. It's going to be a climb. And it's, it's really perseverance matters tremendously. The, the creative people often in their lives have obstacles and they're willing to overcome them. So that's the second thing. And, and related to that is that if you have a creative idea, the creativity doesn't end when you have the idea. Uh, part of the creative process is selling it. So rather than expecting people just to love your creative idea, you need to realize that if you have a new idea, people probably won't like it because it challenges existing ways of doing things. So it's up to you to persuade people uh, that they should listen to you, and that's a, that's a long process. Those are great yeah. suggestions, and I think what you said about the concreteness of it, it matters so much because people – are looking, I think, for that and don't sometimes know what it looks like, and particularly if they have a limited definition of creativity that just has to do with the arts, for instance, and, and trying to push beyond and, and very much talk about the intelligence part, the ideal part that that can include the arts, but can include a lot of other things, too. And you've, you've made some of those connections into other areas, I think, with some of your wisdom research, for instance, which I, I find fascinating partly because of my own interest in, in the connections between creativity and aging and purpose. And so this connection of wisdom to, to particularly later life is sort of an obvious one. I'm wondering if you'd say something about that. But also, why does it have to do with children as well, which you've, you've done a lot of work with? Yeah. Well, I got interested in wisdom because, you know, one of the things you find in your life is that you come up with an idea, you think it's good, and then you realize it's not as good as you thought. And I'd come up with a theory of intelligence that said tests like IQ tests or SATs or ACTs measure the analytical part of intelligence. They don't measure the creative part or the practical part. Uh, our research has shown that creative thinking and practical thinking are really uh, not totally, but largely independent of IQ and analytical thinking. 
uh, and so I was calling. I called it the uh, theory of successful intelligence. That to be successful, you need to be creative in coming up with new ideas, analytical in ascertaining whether they're good ideas, and practical in implementing your ideas and persuading others of their value. And then, you know, someone would say to me, "Well, how about Stalin or Hitler?" I mean, it sounds like by your standards. Uh, they were practically intelligent. They were creative in a sort of perverse way, and uh, they were analytical. Uh, and what I realized is that what's missing in people like that is the wisdom component, which is using your knowledge and your abilities for a common good by balancing your own interests with other people's interests, with larger interests over the long and short term through the infusion of positive ethical values. And I've become convinced that if you look at failures of leadership, if you look at the Wall Street crisis of 2008, to take an example, uh, the people who are behind that crisis were really smart. Uh, you know, they, they a lot of them went to elite schools and had great degrees and had high SAT scores. Uh, and what they lacked is wisdom. Uh, they were doing it, what was good for them personally in the short run, not what was for the common good in the long run. And they were kind of leaving the positive ethical values thing uh, in the dust. So I think that if you look at, you know, if you look at politicians, uh, and you get somewhat skeptical or even cynical about them, I think it's usually not because they're stupid. It's because they're just not wise. I mean, you know, like we just had this election, and I, th I think, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, people really want our government to work together uh, to get some things done, and instead it's more uh, posturing by both parties, uh, and that just isn't what we need. So I, uh, my hope is that we'll put more emphasis in our schooling with kids as well as uh, even adults at the college level uh, in how can you use your abilities and your knowledge for a common good. And that's certainly uh, what I'm trying to emphasize at Oklahoma State. Great. Well, um, I want to know what your ideas on what leads to wisdom, how that um complements your study of leadership styles and how those two might go together. Yeah, well, I think that leaders, that, you know, successful leaders are creative in coming up with a vision because to lead you need to have a vision of where you're trying to take people. And if a leader doesn't have vision, people see it very quickly. Uh, they begin to feel like their country or their organization is rudderless. Uh, you need the analytical part to know if it's a good vision. Uh, you need the practical part to get people to actually go along with your vision. And most of all, you need wisdom to make sure that it is something that's for the common good. So I think that, you know, wisdom is a really essential part of leadership and that when we send kids to college, we should be, and even in the high schools and earlier, uh, we should be emphasizing that. The, how do you teach for that? Well, I think there are a few things. One is the importance of what's sometimes called dialogical thinking. It's seeing things from other points of view. So, it, you know, and sometimes I think that's a challenge for our country, which, uh, you know, at times I think that we 
see our own point of view very well, but we don't quite see that of other countries. So it's, you know, trying to understand any given problem, you know, how would a Democrat see it, how would a Republican see it, but how would someone in another culture see it? So it's understanding the way other people think is important to wisdom. I think the second thing that's important to develop, and I think the way you do this is through role modeling and case studies, is positive ethical values, and that is giving people ethical dilemmas and you know, asking them how they'd solve them. We were just talking in my office this morning about, you know, when you have a, if you're a doctor and you have a medical salesman come in and he offers to take you to lunch or to give you some trinkets, you know, when you accept favors, uh, it could be favors a, a doctor or it could be a politician accepting money. I mean, you know, the way it works is that something is expected in return. So I think we really need to pay much more attention to positive ethical values. And it's not teaching morality. It's not exactly what religious schools do. What religious schools do, I think, is, you know, tends to be here rules of right and wrong, and that's important. It's Here, it's how can you apply your ethical values in your everyday life to the kinds of decisions that you're going to face. And, Bob, how does that... Um I know you studied love and relationships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that uh, fit into collaborations or into relationship and, and love relationships? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. Uh, yeah, so when I studied love, uh, basically uh, I have a theory called the triangular theory, and it argues that there are three parts to love. One is intimacy which is your caring communication and respect for the other person. It's how close you are. Uh, The second is passion, which is how excited you are, uh, the extent to which you feel like you couldn't live without the other person, uh, the extent to which you're really focused on them and absorbed by them. And the third component is commitment, which is that you're in this for keeps and that you're really serious about it even if things go wrong. And where wisdom is really important is especially in the intimacy component because you can only be truly intimate with someone else if you understand that person's point of view, if you understand where they're coming from. And if you don't have that kind of dialogical understanding of how the other person's thinking, how they're feeling, how they're reacting – then it's hard to have a really intimate relationship. You can have the passion, you know, you can have the excitement, you can have the commitment, but you can't have the depth of relationship that occurs with intimacy, which means that you feel, you understand them and they understand you as a person, not only your strengths, but your weaknesses, and they can live with those weaknesses. Thank you. In the last minute or so, picking up on your love research, how how did that bring you into the hate topic, and and what did you learn on, on that end of the spectrum? Oh, uh, okay. Well, um, I I got interested in love at a time in my life when uh, you know I was having some relationship challenges, and I guess I got interested in hate when I thought you know first of all my family background uh you know my mother's side was an austrian she came over in 1938 but a lot of her family didn't make it and so i had a you know for
for me, I usually study things that are relevant to my personal background, and that was one thing. And the second thing was that I was surprised that in the 1990s there were more genocides than there had been at any time since uh, World War II. And it, it seemed odd that, you know, I, I don't know if you know this, but during the 20th century, uh, IQs were increasing. In other words, what it would take to get a, a given IQ score was getting harder and harder. People were getting smarter in IQ sense, and that's a well-established phenomenon around the world. And I was wondering, if people are getting smarter, then why are we having more genocides than ever before? And uh, I became interested in the notion of hate and that, you know, sometimes that it's kind of the flip side of love. So the hate is when you have negation of intimacy. It's instead of having intimacy, it's that you can't imagine closeness or connection with a person or a group. Uh, so there's a negation of intimacy component. There's a passion component. Uh, and that's kind of like if you buy a new car and you drive it out of the showroom and then someone smashes into you just as you're going out. Or, you know, or if you uh, come home early from work and uh, you go to see your husband or wife and you discover that, uh, you know, a surpri- an unwelcome surprise. And then um, there's also a commitment component in hate, which is that you become cognitively committed uh, to ideas that are, just wrong, you know, like that a group is terrible or that they're, you know, enemies of God or they're enemies of this country or they're trying to control things. Well, thank you very much. I know that was a huge topic for our brief remaining moments, but thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks. Robert Sternberger, psychologist and provost of Oklahoma State University, and he'll be at the Creativity World Forum in Oklahoma City on November 17th. You can listen to the show again and find more information about our guests and coming shows at creativityandplay.com. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. Thank you, Bob. Look forward to meeting you in Oklahoma City. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us.